I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Well, hey there. Welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Hope you're having a great week. I certainly am, although the weather is starting to turn. You know, you can kind of feel that little fall chill in the air. And whenever that happens, it's kind of bittersweet for me. I think some part of my brain thinks it's time to go back to school, which is weird because that's something I haven't done for like 25 years. But I guess old habits die hard. Um, We have an interesting show for you this week. We have writer Chuck Klosterman stopping by. Uh, We're also going to talk to a woman who wrote a book about the world's most famous mime, Marcel Marceau. Did you know that Marcel Marceau was part of the French resistance during World War II? Not like as a mime, I mean as a regular dude. But he actually saved a bunch of kids from going to concentration camps. He had kind of an incredible life, which we're going to learn more about. Plus, we got music from uh, Justin Towns Earl. So we have a lot to get to this hour. But I got to say, there was one thing that I felt like I needed to address straight away when I stepped on the stage at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland the week that we taped this episode, which was just recently. Um, There was some really unusual stuff going on with the local atmosphere. Take a listen. We have quite the show for you this week. Our theme is not so small talk. You know how sometimes you're making small talk and you're literally just trying to fill time until the elevator doors open? and you can go on with your life. But there are other times when you're talking about something and it seems kind of insignificant, but it's actually something where the stakes are pretty high. Like that is not so small talk. Like an example would be this week in Portland, if you try to make small talk with anybody in this city, there's only one thing that they want to discuss. And that is the blanket of smoke that has descended on the entire city. Because there are these wildfires that are happening just to the east of us. And they've got them up in Washington State, too. And they have created all this smoke. And because of the wind patterns or maybe, like, the lack of wind patterns, the smoke has come down and totally enveloped the whole region. 
And obviously, for the people who live near where the fires are happening, it's got to be super scary, and, and we're thinking of them even as we record this. But even if you just live in Portland or up in Seattle or whatever, it is a super surreal experience right now because you can walk outside in the middle of the day and with no sunglasses, you can just stare at the sun, Donald Trump style. <laughs> and like, you're totally fine <laughs> because there is this weird foggy haze over it. You can still see the sun, but it's like a red, dusty orb out there, and it feels otherworldly. I don't even mean that like to be hyperbolic. I mean, when you were standing in your front yard and you were staring at the sun and it does not hurt your eyes, you do not feel like you are on planet Earth. You feel like you are on Tatooine, <laughs> which is the home planet of Luke Skywalker. You're just trying to get to Tashi Station to get those power converters. I want to thank the four people in America who got that joke. I will see you at the Comic-Con. So it's very weird and disorienting right now because of what's going on with the smoke, but it's not just the smoke. It's that ash is also falling from the sky, and it's, like, it's almost unlike anything I've seen in my life. I say almost because I have seen something like this one other time. I had just turned six years old. It was in 1980. My family had just moved to Seattle, and Mount St. Helens erupted. And I remember watching it on the news and then going to the window and looking outside and seeing ash just coming down from the sky. And being a little kid, I didn't really understand geography, I had heard we lived near Mount St. Helens, which was like over 100 miles away. But in my little kid brain, I thought it was one to two blocks. <laughs> so I assumed we were definitely dying. And I did what you do when you're a little kid and you're scared. And I went and I found my dad. And I asked him, I said, I just saw this mountain explode on TV, and now there's ash falling out of the sky. Um, are we going to survive? And he took my hand, and in that kind of like fatherly way, I'll never forget what he said. He said, I sure hope so. <laughs> Which is why I have not slept an entire night without crying in the last 35 years. So this whole smoke and ash thing is bringing up a lot of stuff for me. Just bear with me, okay, for the next hour or so. Sometimes I feel like most of this show is just me trying to work through childhood issues. Uh, this is Livewire, by the way. Uh, I'm Luke Burbank, your host. Our theme this week is Not So Small Talk. Um, I was just talking about all this smoke and ash that was raining down in Portland, uh, and most of that was coming from something called the Eagle Creek Fire. Um, during the week that we were putting this show together, our executive producer noticed some Facebook posts from somebody that she knew. It was a Portland writer named Peter Ames Carlin. And in the posts, Peter was telling this crazy story of how he and his family had gone on a day hike to this like waterfall swimming hole thing. And then on their way back to the car, a wildfire cut off their path. And so they ended up spending the entire day and night hiking 
and sleeping in the wilderness with a bunch of total strangers. They were all just trying to escape this fire. Um, And so we wanted to learn more about this. So we got Peter up onto the stage at the Alberta Rose Theater to give us more of the details. So you'd been to this swimming hole. You were going back towards your car. There was a fire that sent you back to the swimming hole. And now it's you and 140, 150 randos just (laughs) trying to survive. (laughs) Yeah, a whole bunch of us randos hanging out. Like, who was up there? What was the scene? There was a bunch of kids from Salem, some high school kids who were celebrating somebody's birthday. So they were doing high school kid things. And was see, there really a guy with a didgeridoo? Oh, totally. Yeah, no, that was the hippies. <laughs> there were these hippies. There were like three or four of them. And the one guy had the guitar. He was like, he kind of seemed to be like the alpha hippie because like they all seemed to kind of... That seems like an oxymoron. So you've got a bunch of people who don't know each other. Right. And you're not sure how long you're going to be in the woods because one part's cut off by fire. You're getting some info from the the Forest Service, but, like, was there any point where people were saying, what are our collective resources? Like, what food do we have between the group? It was every person for themselves? No, we were. It was every person standing there sort of loose-jawed looking up at the uh, this enormous column of smoke that was seemingly headed in our direction and growing larger and larger. And I would turn to the guy next to me and we started a conversation and I, and I asked him what he did. And he said that he had uh, just retired from a career as, as a medic in the US Air Force. I said, well, pff, you're the guy that should be getting us all together. You know, you should, you're the one who should have us digging trenches and making like tools out of sticks or something. I mean, you, this is like what you do. All, all of your army information and, and military information comes from Hogan's Heroes, Yeah, I think. pretty much. That and a, and a touch of Gilligan's Island. Right, sure. And so he came back about five minutes later, and uh, he had found a high school kid who had some kind of phone plan with extended coverage. And she was talking to someone at the sheriff's office, but she was getting kind of upset. So he took the phone, he got the information from them, which was basically, stay where you are. And so he came back and climbed atop, like, a boulder, basically, called everyone together in a very sort of calm and measured voice. He said, this is what's happening. We spoke to the sheriff. We're going to sit here. You know, the the Forest Service knows we're here. And, you know, helicopters had started buzzing in, you know, from the other fire to try to control this one. And then buzzed off and then buzzed back and, and dropped a message which was actually two messages, but it landed just across the stream and this guy sort of splashed over and came back with it. And on the ribbon, it said, disregard first message. <laughs> it's like, okay. But then it said, um, we see you, danger, stay put. But then everyone, so he read that aloud and then everyone like in unison said, What's on the first message? And then he read that. And this was the message you did not want to get, because what it said was, fire moving rapidly, extreme danger, go to the Columbia. But the only problem with that instruction is that our only path to the Columbia in the north, the Columbia River, was on fire. And they knew that. Thank God they threw the second message. Yeah. Well, this guy, Rob, it sounds like really did a great job of kind of keeping everybody moving in the same direction and on the same page, which is, in a group dynamic like that, is a really valuable what he role did, to play. What he did, and this was the key thing that I think 
allowed all of us to survive in the end. He stood up on that boulder, he explained what was going on, and very, just by force only of his sort of charisma and obvious intelligence, and we didn't know it at the time, but military training, without issuing an order, without shouting at anyone, he just made everyone into a group. He said, we're gonna stay here together, and when it's time to leave, we're gonna leave together, and we're gonna get through this. Do you know we actually have that guy here to come on stage? Oh he is Tech Sergeant Rob Donez, U.S. Air Force Reservist. Thank you, everyone. I, I... <laughs> at, at what point during this whole thing did you feel your Air Force training kicking in? Like, was it just right away, or did you have to remind yourself, like, hey, I've been training for this for years. I know what to do. Well, well Peter, with his little, his little jib, he was like, yeah, why aren't you digging trenches right now? Why don't we have, like, slingshots, and we're, like, getting ready to go? I'm, I was like, I looked at him, like, you're crazy. But that really kind of snapped you into reality, like, oh, I might be the person with the most training for this kind of event in this group. Um, it kind of knocked me out of the fact that we were swimming and having a fun day into realizing that there's a giant cloud of smoke from where we just got out of. And then his son had told us that the whole entire trail was covered in flames. So the first thing I did was like, I have to make sure that like all these rumors are accurate. Everyone was kind of in these little clustered groups and everyone looked scared. Everyone was kind of concerned because all you heard was like, the trail's cut off. Oh no, it isn't. Oh, the trail's cut off. Like, no, we can get out of here. So I was First thing I did was go out there and check on it, and then when I got down to it, I've never, I've never seen anything like it before. I turned a corner on the trail, and the whole entire valley was just engulfed in flames and smoke. I couldn't see more than like 10 feet past the flames, and that's when I doubled back and was like, we need to get out of here because that's not stopping, and there's no way that us staying in this little swimming hole is going to be safe. And when you say that you were having fun swimming at the swimming hole, you really mean that because you were on a first date... Yeah, uh, so she's a local. I was looking for a tour guide, and I, well, that was my excuse. Right. So, um, how do you feel like the date went? <laughs> I mean, do you feel like this was, that you guys go and you play skee ball and whatever, but like that goes one way, but this is you like saving 145 people potentially. This must have reflected. Do you feel like the date went well? <laughs> I think there were positives. Rob? This, guy, this guy moved to Oregon last week. Yeah, did you really, did you really move to Oregon a week ago? Uh, yeah, I've been here since um, it's about a week and five day, four days now. And you're already on a radio show? That's insane. <laughs> Peter Ames Carlin and Technical Sergeant Rob Donis, thank you so much for coming on Livewire. Peter Ames Carlin and Technical Sergeant Rob Donis. Right here on Livewire, um, as you probably figured out, Rob and his date and Peter and his family, they made it out okay. Um, they did have to hike for like over 26 miles. They had to sleep on the ground. Some of them in bathing suits because that's all they had brought for this, what was supposed to be a day hike thing. Um, incredibly though, all 145 or so of them managed to walk out of the woods safely the next day. Even the guy with the didgeridoo. This is Livewire from PRI. 
Uh, Coming up after the break, we are going to learn about Marcel Marceau, the world's most famous mime. We're also going to learn why mime is not something uh, you want to do naked. I promise it'll all make sense as soon as we come back from the break. This is Livewire Radio from PRI. Stay with us. Livewire gets support from Fully. Fully is an amazing company, all right? They're based in Portland, Oregon, just like Livewire is. They've been around forever, just like Livewire has. And they think about all kinds of creative solutions to problems that people have. We like to think in the way that Livewire does. The thing is, if you have to sit behind a desk all day for your work, you have probably learned at this point that there's no amount of walking the hallways during your lunch break or maybe, I don't know, going to yoga or Pilates after work. There's no amount of that that can undo the damage that happens to your body when you're just sitting in like a conventional chair at a conventional desk. We all know now, like the science even points to this, it's so not good for you. So why not make that work experience something that's also great for your body? Like right now, I'm sitting on the TikTok stool that Foley sent me, thanks guys, which is really comfortable, but also really keeps me in motion. So the blood is going to all of the parts of my body that it needs to, to keep me feeling creative and delightful. I mean, don't I sound delightful right now? They also make the Jarvis sit-stand desk I use when I'm doing the show at the Alberta Rose Theater. Uh, They make the Capisco stool that I use as well. They just make all kinds of cool stuff that keeps you in motion, even when you're being productive at work or in your home office or wherever you might be. They're a Portland company, as I mentioned. They've been great supporters of Livewire, and we'd love you to go support them now by checking out their full line at fully, that's F-U-L-L-Y, dot com slash Livewire. That's fully.com slash Livewire. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Our theme this hour is not so small talk, okay? Small talk is one thing, but then there's also just not talking at all, right? Which is what mimes do, if you've ever seen one. And a very famous mime is the subject of journalist Sean Wen's fascinating and beautiful new book. It's called A 20-Minute Silence Followed by Applause. And it's about Marcel Marceau, okay? He's the most famous mime in history. When you think about a mime, like when you imagine a guy with a beret and a stripy shirt and he's pretending to drink tea or he's getting stuck in like an imaginary wind, you're thinking of Marcel Marceau, okay? He popularized all of that stuff. Um, But as Sean Wen found out, There was way more to this guy than what meets the eye. When did you first get interested in Marcel Marceau, of all people? Well, I read his obituary when he died in fall of 2007. I work in public radio. I'm a producer there. And I was like, I should make mime radio. I had this How was that going to work exactly? Good question. Is that why it's a book now? Right. Because, like, nobody wanted it as a radio piece? <laughs> there weren't enough audio possibilities? Um, well, I actually traveled to France and, and Germany, and I interviewed his students, and I made audio recordings of mime performances, which... What do those sound like? A lot of creaking chairs, but... Did you really think that there was a way to... Because, I mean... People who have heard this show know we have some questionable ideas for radio. 
But like that seems beyond the beyonds. Did you really think there was a way to make a, a radio show about the art form of, of mime and miming? Yes. I was totally sincere about it. I, I must have gathered maybe, maybe a dozen hours of audio. Um, I, I, I went to rehearsal. I um, interviewed several of his students, like really protracted conversations about what it was like to work with him, learn from him. And um, I, it's funny, I was just listening back to the old tape of a performance where it's like a lot of sighing, a lot of laughter, a lot of clothing rustling, a lot of footsteps. Was your plan to like sort of have a narration over it later that would explain what was happening or was this just gonna be like the most high concept radio piece of all time? It was time? gonna be very difficult radio. I was in college. I was in college when I started the project so being pretentious was like a part-time job. <laughs> Um, when did Marcel Marceau get interested in the form of mime? When he was 16, Germany invaded France, and his family lived in the city of Strasbourg, so on the border of France and Germany, and they were told they had an hour to evacuate the city. And he and his older brother took off with like 60 pounds of belongings each, and both went to work at the in the French Resistance. And, there's and actually, they saved a lot of, of children and young people, right, from concentration camps. Yes. He, um, in addition to mime, he also did some visual art throughout his life. So he would forge documents for, uh, for Jewish children to obscure their ages, make them seem younger than they were, and march them into Switzerland. Um, and save them from the concentration camps. Um, but there's a story about him um, that, that he told. I, I heard in an interview long after I wrote the biographical sections of the book where he talked about a group of German soldiers happening upon him, and he pretended to be a German soldier, and they and passed. So he had this amazing facility for kind of mimicry and physicality. Right. Like before he ever got done up as a mime. That's uh, right. I read in your book that like when he started to get into it, I mean, he took it very seriously and his instructors took it really seriously. Like he had one instructor who mostly would perform nude. Yes. Until people said, yo, you got to stop that. <laughs> so Etienne de Creux was, um, he's considered a very serious theorist within mime. He was Marceau's teacher. They had a huge falling out because of how popular Marceau got, because he did create this populist form. And he put on pants, which yes, I think is yes. probably a huge leap forward <laughs> for the art form. He believed in clothing. Um, but yeah, de Creux would perform completely in the nude until he realized that it was so distracting to his audience members that he you know, decided, fine, fine, I'll put on a loincloth instead. Um, he would interrupt performances and go lecture the audience about not taking him seriously enough. He was quoted as saying, art is supposed to be serious. Wow. Uh, we have Sean Wen here on Livewire, by the way. Her new book is called A 20-Minute Silence Followed by Applause. It's about Marcel Marceau. Um, when people think of mime, I think they think of BIP, which was this creation of Marcel Marceau's. It's kind of like the guy in the stripy shirt with the like floppy hat on. Do you think that character overall was like good for the art form or not? Because it does seem at times like it's kind of a, a shorthand for something that seems sort of comical to people. 
Well, I think this is one of the ways in which Marceau becomes a tragic figure because when he started, he was considered this revolutionary artist. He really popularized for the 20th century this idea of performing in silence. But then he, he basically was too good at his job. He created Bip and he basically created the caricature of mime, like a guy in a sailor suit with white face paint being French, those are all things that we know from him. But he also came up with some of these things that were like the go-to mime things, like being in a stiff breeze, right? That's him. Yes. Being in a box or a cage, that's Marceau. Like, he came up with these things. Right. His walking against the wind inspired Michael Jackson's moonwalk. If you think about it, it's the same action, right? It's as if you're trying to go forward, but there's a force pushing you back, which also is a decru theory, counterweight, that, um, you know, if I were, say, to, like, hold a glass of water, I would just hold an invisible cup and my hand would go all over the place. But if a mime held invisible glass of water, there's a weight, there's a density. You can see the water, as it were. So Marceau and Michael Jackson were friends for, like, a long time, right? Marceau and Michael Jackson collaborated in their lifetime. Um, there's this really eerie footage of the two of them on stage. This was... Sort of when Marceau's, it was late in Marceau's career, it was in the 90s, it was the pinnacle of Michael Jackson, and they were being sh screamed at by photographers. Um, Michael Jackson would collapse on stage in just a couple days, and there was so much, this is a similarity with Marceau, there was so much white face paint on Michael Jackson's face that the medics had to lift up his shirt to check his complexion. Wow. And um, he and Marceau both performed the invisible box routine on stage, which serves as a metaphor for their, their own lives. I was gonna ask if he's a happy guy, but then I'm thinking about a quote that you have in the book that says, this is Marceau, theater people, if we are not seen, we don't exist, we are nothing. Right. That doesn't sound like a super happy person. Was he a tortured soul? He had this burning need to perform. Um, for most of his career, he performed 200 shows a year, 300 shows a year, um, deep into his old age. For a person who lost most of his family in the Holocaust, think about what he, that does to his new family, right? His wives, his children. It's, it's funny because I, I went into this project with Marceau, only as a vehicle for writing, or rather only as a vehicle for mime radio. And yes. so I didn't have a lot of opinions about him. I thought it was fun and challenging to write about something that evaded language. A lot of years passed between the first draft and the last draft, and in that time I learned a lot more about ego, a lot more about making work, a lot more about creepy old men, and my... Uh, Opinion of him changed a lot from to, something to very neutral um, to something really complex. I guess one of the, the first questions that set me on this story was, what was it like for him to be a war hero, to be fighting the resistance, to go through this tragedy and be an artist? And I, I do think that there is a certain impoverishment of your personal life that happens with it. What would you like people to know about this art form? Like, what have you figured out about it, doing way more study on it than most people? Like, what do people not get about it? I guess I want people to know that it's so much more pervasive in our culture than, than they think it is. Um, the, I, I don't defend miming as much as I end up defending clowning. 
Um, but because mime and clown are related. Um, they're both really primitive forms of theater. Most clowns are silent. And um, I find myself being like, no, like clowns are really important. As soon as I start on this book, I start to see clowns everywhere. And <laughs> Marcel Marceau as Bip is a clown. I feel like that last comment hits a little close to home, but I appreciate you being here. Sean Wen, the Thank new you. book is a 20 minute silence followed by applause. Thanks for coming on Livewire. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Alaska Airlines asks, what comes to mind when you think of Alaska Airlines? Snowdrifts and husky puppies? How about sunscreen and salsa dancing? Don't be fooled by the name. Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world, with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations like New York, Honolulu, and Mexico City. So the next time you think Alaska Airlines, think skylines, luau's, and margaritas. Find out where else they fly at alaskaair.com. This is Livewire Radio. Our next guest has the amazing ability to write about things like junior college basketball in North Dakota or the band Kiss, stuff that could seem like small talk, but he writes about it in a way that really ends up illuminating the world we live in. He's the best-selling author of many books. His latest is 10, a highly specific, defiantly incomplete history of the early 21st century. Please welcome Chuck Klosterman to Livewire. Chuck Klosterman, welcome to Livewire. It's great to be here. Have you always been a person who analyzed the, the world in a certain way, like even as a kid living in North Dakota, or is that a muscle that you have developed over the course of, of your adulthood and your career? Being somebody who, who, who listens to a song or, or uh, watches a game or, or observes something that a lot of other people just sort of write off, and, and you often take a, an interesting take and also a larger meaning out of those kinds of things. I, don't know, I suppose the short answer is yes. The real answer is I don't know. I don't know what I'm like. To me, it seems normal that if you're watching something or listening to something, you would think about it. What, what was uh, life like growing up in North Dakota, one of seven kids? Did you enjoy it? Was it did you feel you know, lost in the shuffle of all those kids? I, no. I mean, I was the last one. It wasn't really until I moved to New York that I realized that my life was insane. <laughs> I, I had no idea. I th it just seemed like, you know, whatever experience you have as a kid is normative, right? It seems like, well, this must be the experience people have. And it wasn't until I would describe my life to people there and I would just kind of gauge their reaction that it would make me realize that my, my life was very strange coming from this very, you know, I was from a farm outside of a town of about 500 people that was an hour south of Fargo, which I assumed was a big place. <laughs> no one else thinks that. I mean, you know, there's that, I often mention this story, you know, there's that John Cougar Mellencamp song, Small Town, right? Yeah. Okay, so I would hear that song in high school, and I thought, well, it's kind of amazing. He's writing a song about a town like my town, which had, you know, 500 people or whatever. 
It turns out he's writing that song about Indianapolis. <laughs> like that was his perception of what a small town was. <laughs> I, I just, it, I, you know, yeah. I don't even understand. It's like, I mean, there's plenty of, you know, Hardee's and McDonald's. It, it doesn't seem like a small place at all. So I didn't have cable growing up. Nobody did, you know. Which um, is also interesting yeah. to me because you write with such facility about pop culture. I mean, you must have had to sort of catch up on some of these things, at least if they were TV shows from a certain era. Oh, well, definitely. Definitely. There's things I just missed entirely. And, like, experiences now um, that, you know, as somebody who writes about music for a living, when I think about it, it seems kind of crazy. Like, okay, when I was in high school, a senior in high school, here's what I knew about the band The Smiths. In a different town, there were two girls who liked them, and they had black jeans. I'm not joking. That's all I knew about him. I didn't know anything else. And apparently, what were their names? One was named Sasha, and one was named Chloe. Those sound like Smiths fans. Yeah, um, definitely. And uh, like in my town, you listen to country or you listen to metal, and that was it. Like the crossover act was AC/DC. <laughs> uh, like I was so into metal, or what I viewed as metal. I guess it was really just pop music because it was like Poison and stuff. But like I was so in to metal that I would not listen to the radio. So it's the early 90s then, I'm at a keg party in college. We're all drinking around this keg and someone puts a song on and I'm like, this song is amazing. It's going to be huge. And it was Come On Eileen. <laughs> I had somehow managed to never hear that song. I just thought like, boy, this is real catchy. We have Chuck Klosterman here. A writer extraordinaire. His latest book is Ten. Um, Ten is a collection of pieces that you had written, profiles that you'd done of athletes and famous people. And there was one particular line that really jumped out at me. It was a profile you wrote about Tim Tebow, the football player. Okay. Uh, was a college star, never really caught on in the NFL, but was very polarizing because he was a super Christian dude who would like kneel after he would score a touchdown in college. And so he came to represent a lot for, for some people, and then he came to represent something not great for other people. Your exact uh, line in the piece is, half the people who watched him play loved him a little too much. The other half hated him too much. Some people exist only for the benefit of strangers. That was like an intense thing for me to read. Do you feel like there's more of that happening in our culture now, maybe because of the internet or because of the way we look at people, that there are more people that are like Tebow's. They just are somebody for us to either love or hate and fixate on. Well, that's an interesting question because with him, it was an organic thing. It was like you could not have designed an athlete to occupy that space in a, in a more effective way. I mean, like, are there more people like that? Well, probably because that's what people want now. People are now attracted to polarization in a way that I, I have never experienced in my previous 45 years. Well, this is a theory that you put forward in a, in a different book that you wrote um, called What If We're Wrong, but you talk about football and this idea that now seems to be the popular opinion that football may not make it for another 50 years because we know about all the health risk, etc. But But you have this sort of other theory that maybe it's going to have a smaller but, like, more obsessed fan base because of this kind of polarizing component. Well, and not even necessarily more obsessed, like, more politicized. 
It seems possible to me that right now the problem with football is that so many people feel they are inadvertently complicit with the activity. I mean, there are sports more dangerous than football. There are extreme sports where the risk is much higher, but there's not millions and millions of people kind of casually watching it on a Sunday. And what is happening now is all these people who are kind of casually watching this experience are suddenly getting all this information about CT and the dangers, and it's they're like, what am I doing? So the magnitude of football is huge. Now, there's this sense that maybe people will stop letting their kids play football, or maybe some people will be pushed away from watching it, and the fan base will go down. But decreasing the size of the audience doesn't necessarily decrease its importance. Because it could become one of these things that people feel is being pulled away from, from them for reasons that really reflect a different view about how the culture should be. And as a consequence, it'll become more important. I mean, you see this with uh, you know, gun control or, or Christmas decorations in a public space, any of these things, where the idea is not so much this thing is important, but the sense that somebody else is trying to control what I can say is meaningful to my life. So I can see football actually becoming more politically important, even if it's less popular. What is your like personal relationship with, with NFL tackle football at this point? Uh, unchanged. <laughs> well, I'm out of questions. Um, I mean, none of the, none of the, because the, the, the sort of journey I've been on as a lifelong, really pretty intense football fan is, one thing that's changed for me is now when there's a, a really cataclysmic hit, I used to, five years ago, just be like, oh, you got him. And now I'm like, is that guy going to be okay? Well, and I feel like it's the beginning of something changing internally in me. I'm wondering if you had any experience like that? Well, of course, there's, you know, there is this weird sensation when you're watching a football game now that, could I see somebody die? But at the same time, like, you know, there was a period with smoking, for example, when it hadn't necessarily been proven to kill people. But I have a hard time believing that people were like, so you think inhaling smoke into our lungs is bad? The fact that I cough a lot or when I it's, it's like there is a sense that football is dangerous, that it has always existed. Now we have this different kind of proof. Um, but, I, I mean, there's a larger question here. It's like, is it unacceptable to allow people to do things that are dangerous if it is their choice to do so? And I think that's a pretty meaningful question. And I think that there are two sectors of society moving in different directions with this one idea that we need to protect people from themselves. And the other is that, well, an essential part of being alive is having the freedom to make these decisions. We're, we're getting short on time, uh, but I feel like I, I, I need to ask you this question because it was your book, uh, What If We're Wrong, raises this this idea or question that I have had for a long time, which is basically like, we have what we think of as the conventional wisdom and the conventional science, in as much as science is a real thing anymore. Um, and we just assume that that's right, because that's the, that's the stuff that we think is true. But if you look back historically, every like, you know, like century has had things that were totally thought to be true, and they were not. And what insulates us from that same exact experience? What if we're wrong? Like, what can we do, if anything, to sort of future-proof our theories? Well, nothing. I mean, there's nothing you can do to, to protect yourself from the possibility that the structure of your thinking is flawed. 
But there's also these other, the larger question is like, okay, so like gravity, for example, okay. So for hundreds of years, the idea of gravity was basically based on like Aristotle's idea. Because when Aristotle was around, science was more tied to philosophy than math as it is now. And he was like, well, you know, a rock doesn't float because a rock wants to be on the ground. It's trying to get to the center of the universe. The center of the universe obviously must be the earth. So the reason rocks don't float is because he's trying to get down to the center of the earth. The rock has agency. And you're saying that is not correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you bring that up. A lot of times I do book readings and I bring that up and people kind of like shortle like, oh, you know, like what a moron Aristotle was or whatever. That's, that was my operating theory yeah. right up until you said that. Yeah, so. You know, we're all learning so, something. But so now, you know, of course, it's like we use Newtonian physics, basically, and this is all starting with, you know, that period of the you know, 1600s. And the idea now is that because we use the scientific method, um, we're constantly getting closer and closer to this hard reality. And so is it possible that this age of being cataclysmically wrong about these central ideas, is it over? Uh, I think some people in the science community would say yes, but the history of the world and the history of ideas is the history of people being wrong. So it is hard for me to kind of fully embrace the idea that somehow we've turned this corner, even though I want that to be the case. Is there a band that right now we are just not realizing their awesomeness, that future generations yeah. will go, oh, those guys had it? Yeah, well... We think about the future differently than we think about the present. The criteria we use for thinking about the past is different. So what we have to kind of do is think like, what could change about the way we appreciate music now that in 200 years, when we look back on this period, they'll appreciate something that we're completely overlooking. Like Dexie's Midnight Runners? Yeah, well, okay, it's like, here's a, here's a very small example. I give. I give talks at colleges a lot, and I'm talking to, you know, people who were born, you know, 18, 19 years ago, and their interest in rock music is very small, but there'll always be some kids, particularly the kind of kids who come to my readings, I guess, who are into <laughs> rock music, okay? Now, there's certain bands they're inevitably into. The Beatles, still. Nirvana. Jimi Hendrix. And Sublime. <laughs> There are tons of Do kids. Do they practice Santeria? Well, we, I, we overlooked an obvious thing, which is that there are a lot of 19-year-old kids who smoke pot for the first time when they go to college. And they get Sublime records. And that sort of keeps that music alive, which is not something we would typically use as a criteria for measuring how good a band is. But let's say in 200 years, culture has changed entirely. And the retrospective memory of rock music is simply tied to substance abuse. Well, then, bands who wrote and sort of talked and experienced the drug culture... Hello, be, Cypress Hill. ...will be amplified, yes. And suddenly, Cypress Hill matters more than Public Enemy. Because in this future world, that's what matters about that music. I mean, when we think about music from the 1400s, we probably don't think about what the people during that time cared about. We think about these other things. How did it reflect the culture of the world at that time? This is what I'm talking about in this book all the time. It's like the thing that really changes is not the content, but sort of what we decide is meaningful about contents. You just blew my mind. And I would like to say, Chuck Klosterman, welcome to Portland. Great to be here.
That is Chuck Klosterman right here on Livewire. His latest book is 10. Don't worry. We got more coming up with Chuck. We're going to get some of his hot takes, including his admittedly limited knowledge of the eating clean movement. Yeah, maybe it was like how like raccoons clean food. Right. It's like I'm going raccoon style. That's all coming up in a moment on Livewire from PRI. Stay with us. Hey, on this week's episode of the Livewire podcast, we'd like to thank some very special members. Of course, I'm talking about Travis Sanson of Bainbridge Island, Washington, and Natalie Beckman of Seattle, Washington. Support from members like Travis and Natalie is a hugely important part of making Livewire a reality. So thank you, Travis and Natalie. This episode of the Livewire podcast, you guys made this happen. This is happening in your honor. So thank you so much. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. We are coming to you from the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. Our theme this week is not so small talk. We have Chuck Klosterman here. All right, Chuck, uh, you have said before that it takes you about two years or so of thinking about something before you feel like you have a deep opinion on it and, and you can write about it. I think we've seen evidence of that even here in the last few moments. That approach is very different from today's hot take culture. Okay. As a person who usually gives a very thoughtful sort of reasoned response, we wanted to test you because, I mean, it's a, it's a new media landscape. You need to work on your hot taking. So we've put together a little list of topics that we'd like to get your short, not particularly well thought out takes on. It's a little exercise we're calling Reluctant Hot Takes. Livewire House Band. All right, so I've got uh, a little uh, music that is exactly 30 seconds long. Okay. I'm going to give you a topic. I'd like to get your reluctant hot take on this particular topic in 30 seconds. Okay. Chuck Klosterman, are you ready? Here we go. Hot take, topic number one. What is your reluctant hot take on the eating clean phenomenon? Okay, I I assume this is some kind of... I mean, I don't eat very clean. Um, is this the idea of like... Hotter? Uh, I, I, you know, what, what, to me, clean eating, it's sort of like... Uh, that would be like eating uh, food that is clear, like Jello. Um, like Crystal Pepsi. Yeah. Uh, I, I just know this, man. People around here love to compost. <laughs> like, you know, it's... Uh, you're not very hard on crime here, but I think you get like the chair for not composting. Um, Very nice. I, I was really limited. That was a good I, what, hot what, take. Is, what is clean eating? That's the kind of in-style way of describing eating healthily. If you're, See, you're, I thought maybe it was like how like raccoons clean food. Right. It's like, I'm going raccoon style. All right. As opposed to having my food covered in sludge. We need another reluctant hot take from you. All right, Chuck Klosterman, your reluctant hot take on jet skis. Well, uh... The jet ski is kind of the uh, snowmobile of the water, I guess. And uh, it seems to now be associated with like eastbound and down. Uh, And uh, I guess people who say yeah very loudly in public. That is not a Venn diagram uh, overlap uh, I was expecting at a public radio uh, taping. uh, You know, it does seem like it would be a fun thing to ride on, but I can't swim, so... 
All right. I would, I would spend a lot of the ride worrying about dying. <laughs> Chuck Klosterman, reluctant hot take on the new Taylor Swift song. The first one or the second one? Whichever you're interested in. How about well, Look What You Made Me Do? Okay. There's absolutely no way people can hate this song as much as they do. I don't even get it, okay? Now there is this belief that Taylor Swift must vote for Donald Trump because she's never implicitly said the opposite, which somehow seems to be bolstered by the fact that she's going to perform at halftime of the college football national championship game. I really find this confusing. She seems like a pretty talented person to me. I'm not exactly sure why people are so angry that she tried to rap. You are, you're figuring it out, my friend. That was, that was an extremely good hot take. Let's, let's end on a winner. Chuck Klosterman, ladies and gentlemen. His new book is 10. Livewire is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Market with meat and seafood traceable to the source whether it's farmed or wild-caught. Because finding out where dinner came from shouldn't feel like an episode of The Twilight Zone. Learn more at WholeFoodsMarket.com. The career of our special musical guest this hour seems almost predetermined. He was born in Nashville to a musician father, Steve Earle, who named him after his music mentor, Towns Van Sant, and yet, Justin Towns Earl has created a sound all his own, releasing seven albums, touring extensively, and building a following for his music. Part of that following, my actual wife, who is here for the show, not to see me, but to see Justin Towns Earl. His latest album is Kids in the Street. Please welcome Justin Towns Earl to Livewire. Hey there, welcome to Livewire. Glad to be here. Um, we are, as I just mentioned, extremely big Justin Towns Earl fans in our house. Um, <laughs> but I also want to ask you about, uh, about the, the musical lineage that you come from. You know, your dad's a, a well-known musician. Is that something that has been um, help, that's helped you in your career, or has it been a source of some frustration? Um, I, I think, personally, it's helped me in my career my my dad was not he wasn't around a lot but when he was he was very hard on me when it came to songwriting very hard on me i mean and you know i'd come to him and play him a song and he'd be like uh, not there and he'd, he'd say stuff like uh keep trying kid you know things like that which was you know i knew right from the start that i had something to live up to that very few you should not try to live up to if you want to try to live up to towns van zant then let me uh, give you your receipt for your fool's errand. Uh, <laughs> you know? That sounds like a complicated relationship. So if you say he wasn't around much, but when he was there, he was being pretty critical. Well, that's the thing is if he'd have been critical about how I should live my life, then I would have probably been pretty pissed off. But if he was critical about how I wrote songs, denying that Steve Earle, denying that Towns Van Zant are great songwriters... I don't give a damn if you're related to him or not. You're just wrong. <laughs> and, and thinking that you're going to live up to him, think, and thinking that you're going to write the Great American Folk Song. Guy Clark and my dad told me the same thing. Stop trying to write the Great American Folk Song, and you'll write good songs. How old were you when you got that advice? 13. 
<laughs> That's an early education. Um, what song are you going to play here? Maybe a moment, I think. Well, that seems like uh, perfect timing. Uh, this is Justin Towns Earl here on Livewire, everybody. Get in the car front with me. No, there's nothing to do around here during the weekend, so we're going to Memphis to get out of town. Going to Memphis to mess around. I've got a bottle of Thunderbird in the trunk and I know a place if there's anything you want This old man runs a store, he'll sell anything to anyone But I don't know what time he closes up So think about it, but baby don't take too much time Maybe only a moment, but maybe time of your life Boys might look rough but they're not tough to me and you Though they can be crude Like the girl less that's going on about He just said she's got a pretty mouth So you see now What I'm dealing with that is Justin Towns Earl right here on Livewire. His new album, Kids in the Street, is available now. Or you can just come over to my house where it is on constant rotation. No joke. That is going to do it for this week's episode. Big thanks to our guests, Chuck Klosterman, Sean Wen, Peter Ames Carlin, Technical Sergeant Rob Donez, Justin Towns Earl, and special thanks to Catherine Smith. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Whole Foods Market, and Fully. Hotel accommodations generously provided by Provenance Hotels. Robin Tenenbaum is the executive producer and co-creator of Livewire. Laura Haddon is our producer and editor. And Melanie Sevchenko is our assistant editor. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Jason Rouse is our announcer. Our house band is Jonathan Newsom, A. Walker Spring, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Daniel Blake does the house sound and the recording. And thanks, as always, to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by Work for Art and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we'd like to thank member Patricia Arjun of Portland, Oregon. If you want to find out more about our show or how to get our podcast or our newsletter, head on over to livewireradio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week. Time of your life, and maybe only a moment, maybe the time of your life. PRI Public Radio International. Dear Livewire. When we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review 
Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. <laughs>